Welcome to Pick 6 Movies, where each season we select six movies all related to a single theme. We examine the history of the people in front of and behind the camera, try to make sense of how and why the movie was made, then discuss each one in way too much detail to see if they're any good. I'm Chad Cooper, and along with my co-host, Bo Ranstall, this season we're examining the films of Turd Ferguson, where we're exploring some of Mr. Burt Reynolds' finest cinematic achievements. In this episode, we get to see Mr. Burt Reynolds team up with one of the most likable, charismatic, and genuinely delightful people to ever grace the silver screen, who can not only act, but embraces an infectious, down-home charm that's second only to a voice that sounds like an angel singing. I'm talking about the person known almost as much for a collection of wigs as they are for their legendary, enormous breasts. Of course, I'm talking about the one, the only, Dom DeLuise. In this episode, we get a movie that has it all singing, dancing, prostitutes, gunplay, ass play, people smoking cocaine, and the return of Jim Neighbors using some language that Frank Sutton, quite honestly, would clearly disapprove of. So join us as we take a look at one of the most confusingly delightful, toe-tappingly enjoyable, moral majority-offending, pro-prostitution, anti-establishment, sing-along and ding-dong movies of the 1980s. Oh yeah, Dolly Parton is in this movie too. Episode 4, The Best Little Whorehouse in Texas. Dolly Parton is the most lauded country performer of all time. Full stop. She's received 25 Recording Industry Association of America certified gold, platinum, or multi-platinum albums. She has an equal 25 number one singles on the Billboard Country Charts, she has 41 top 10 country albums, more than any other artist, and has charted 110 singles over 40 years, another record. She has 9 Grammy Awards of 47 nominations, 10 Country Music Association Awards, 7 Academy of Country Music Awards, 3 American Music Awards, and also received 2 Oscar nominations. She has composed over 3,000 songs and has penned music that rocketed her and others to the tops of the charts, notably Whitney Houston's cover of her song featured in Best Little Whorehouse in Texas, I Will Always Love You. So what is she doing with the likes of Burt Reynolds? Dolly, born in 1946, made her mark on the world with the 1967 album Hello, I'm Dolly. Something she probably said quite a bit to her parents, who had 11 other children besides her. She was always buxom and always brash. Despite singing for the choir as a kid in church, Dolly was equal parts libertine and said in interview she didn't want to say exactly when she lost her virginity for fear of setting a bad example. With an audacious attitude, a look that was hard to forget, and more than enough genuine talent, Dolly was a star. She made her big screen debut in 9 to 5 opposite Jane Fonda and Lily Tomlin, two women of progressive persuasions, and Dolly more than held her own in the cast, becoming a viable movie star almost overnight. The movie, 9 to 5, was Fonda's idea, and she held sway over large decisions, including the casting. Dolly was the first choice for the role of Dora Lee Rhodes, 
and of course penned the very popular title song for the film. Interestingly, she composed the song 9 to 5 by tapping her fingernails like a secretary might on a typewriter and using that as the beat formed the song around it. Not relevant, just awfully cool. Colin Higgins, who had been brought in by Fonda to direct 9 to 5, was charged with helping rewrite the script to make room for all three women. Higgins was a real-deal director who had written Harold and Maude and Foul Play directing the latter and admitted that entering a project with three high-profile, successful women made him expect some tension. Instead, he stated, quote, But they were totally professional, great fun, and a joy to work with. I just wish everything would be as easy. Dolly liked Higgins too, saying, quote, He's a very nice, quiet, low-key guy. Said partner of Higgins, quote, I don't know what I would have done if I'd had one of those mean directors on my first film. Just you wait, Dolly. With Dolly at the height of popularity and Higgins eager to work with the singer again, it made sense that the two would pair again on 1982's The Best Little Whorehouse in Texas. The movie should have been a slam dunk. The musical was written by Larry King, no not that one, and Peter Masterson, and was based on the real-life chicken ranch in LaGrange, Texas. Opening in 1978, the musical ran for over 1,500 performances and was directed by Masterson and Tommy Toon. With its success and bawdy reputation, in fact much of the Tony Awards performance inspired by the musical had to be censored, it was only natural that Hollywood would come calling. Masterson and Toon, who directed the musical, were tapped to direct the film version, which made sense given their familiarity with the project, and co-writer Larry King, no, not that one, pitched some ideas for the lead role of Cathouse Madam Mona Stangley. Shirley MacLaine, Diane Cannon, and Jill Claver were all considered, but Universal Studios wasn't so sure about any of them as a box office draw. Instead, they turned to just-minted movie star Dolly Parton. Once she was cast, King, no, not that one, offered up the idea of Willie Nelson as co-star in the role of Sheriff Ed Earl Dodd, a movie I would genuinely pay to see. Instead, the studio opted for tried-and-true box office gold, the mustache himself, Burt Reynolds. Further, Universal was nervous about letting relative unknowns Masterson and Toon direct the feature, and they brought in our old pal Colin Higgins, who you may recall had just scored big with Dolly and 9 to 5. Despite some studio shuffling, it all seemed like a reasonable mix of talent. But Reynolds, being the star that he was, made some demands. First, he wanted to sing. Next, he would make more than twice Dolly's check for the film, a cool three and a half million dollars, where Dolly herself would be making about a million and a half. The rest of the cast is populated by genuinely good character actors, like Charles Durning, who was nominated for a Golden Globe for this role, and Barry Corbin, who may best be remembered as Maurice from Northern Exposure. And there are the Reynolds regulars, let's call them. Dom DeLuise shows up as Melvin P. Thorpe, and Jim Neighbors is introduced to the Reynolds-verse with this movie, though he'll stick around for more, as you've heard in our discussion of the fantabulously rapey stroker Ace. And then one of the more popular rumors surrounding the production of this film was that its stars took up a whirlwind romance. While there may have been some romancing, neither actor cared much for the other. 
Dolly, who was also navigating a difficult love affair with an unknown band member, though common wisdom is that the mystery man is her band leader, Greg Perry, who later quit music entirely after the production of The Best Little Whorehouse in Texas. Anyway, she said in an interview, I cried an ocean, but I ain't going to talk about it anymore. I've got to keep some mystery. And so she went on to describe her time with Reynolds on the set as a, quote, nightmare. For his part, Reynolds said of Parton that she was, quote, very self-deprecating in public. Dolly suggests that any affair that might have actually gone on between her and Reynolds quickly cooled due to his black moods, sulks, and tantrums. The movie should have been a big hit, and it mostly was. It dethroned E.T. at the box office the weekend it opened before ending its run with almost $70 million. The critics, though, were less kind. Roger Ebert was on the Dolly train, if not that of the movie, saying, quote, If they ever give Dolly her freedom and stop packaging her so antiseptically, she could be terrific. But Dolly and Bird and Whorehouse never get beyond the concept stage in this movie, end quote. It made the movie an even tougher sell, considering you couldn't use the title in some parts of the country. Keep in mind, this is Reagan-era 80s, when the country was withdrawing from the free love and do-what-you-will attitudes of the 60s and 70s. Print ads actually had to be changed to advertise the best little cat house in Texas, in some southern states. The word whorehouse was considered obscene enough at the time that some radio stations refused to mention the movie at all. Parton herself, in interviews, referred to the movie as the best little chicken house in Texas a number of times. But uh, following the release of the movie, Dolly, unfortunately, hit a rough patch. She was still aching from her heartbreak involving her mystery lover, and then had to cancel her new tour due to death threats she received. Lost and fumbling, Dolly was forced to undergo emergency gynecological surgery when she ate so much she ripped the lining of her stomach. There was even a self-confessed moment of suicide where Dolly fully reached the end of her rope, but was saved via a message from God, according to her, through her dog, who clicked his nails on his way to comfort her when Dolly was at her worst. I'm happy to say Dolly recovered quickly, hitting the road on a new tour and finding new roles in Hollywood. Her next big move would be another musical with an actor that was, shall we say, not best known for his vocal talents? Sylvester Stallone in the movie Rhinestone. While it was a flop, Dolly said of working with Stallone that he was, quote, fun to work with, nuts, sick, crazy a scream, as well as pretty to look at. For Burt, Best Little Whorehouse would be the biggest film he starred in from that point on. To paraphrase Chris Walken from True Romance, that was as good as it got, and it would never be that good again. The director, Colin Higgins, would never direct another feature. Dolly, who is really the hero of our little story here, went on to lend her name to a theme park, start her own record label, and amass about half a billion dollars in net worth. And so we'll end with a tip of the hat to the wealthy, talented heroine with a quote from her. It takes a lot of money to look this cheap. And now... The movie that ended one career and marked the fading pinnacle of another, the best little chicken house, er, the whorehouse in Texas.
Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of Pick 6 Movies. As you heard in the introduction, tonight we are speaking about the uh, comedy musical train You left out train wreck. Yeah, it's uh, that voice, of course, uh, <laughs> Chad Cooper, I am Bo Ransdell. We're talking about the Bessel Horror House slash train wreck in Texas. Um, it is, like, I picked this movie. This is one of my picks, obviously. And I picked this movie because I find it to be a curiosity. It is, it is such a, w- a weird combination of things. Like Burt Reynolds in a musical with Dolly Parton, and it's about a whorehouse. As opposed to Burt Reynolds in a musical with animated dogs about, you know, child abduction. Have I told you my weird thing about musicals? Like, I prefer <laughs> animated musicals because that somehow seems less fakey to me. Maybe you should just pretend when you watch a regular musical that, you know, they're all cartoons just drawn very, very lifelike. Well, I tried that with this movie, and then I started to get aroused at other cartoons, and that didn't seem right. Duly noted. So, The Best Little Whorehouse in Texas, Shad. Let's just kick right into it. Let's do it. It, um, of course, is a musical. We begin with a... Well, we don't begin with a musical number, because first, we gotta have Deputy Fred. Yes. Uh, introduce the film for us as played by Jim Neighbors. Uh, point out in the intro, this is the first time Jim Neighbors appears in a Burt Reynolds film. Certainly not the last, but it is the introduction to the uh, the Reynolds verse. I don't think that Jim Neighbors' introduction of this film it could be any more uncomfortable unless it was spoken by maybe a seven-year-old little boy. <laughs> his first line of, of of it was the nicest little whorehouse you ever saw right and then looks into an old-timey viewmaster and now we're it's off to the races as we go into a flashback and now we get our musical number but yeah it's weird it's weird to see jim neighbors pop up like that in the first place because he's not a face you see all the time and then to have him use the word whorehouse right off the bat, it's like, oh, well, I guess things are going to be naughty tonight, Chad. Yeah, and it's it, it's gross uh, hearing it come out of his mouth. And, and his hair is still that jet black quaff that we saw, you know, from Stroker Ace. And it's just it's just it just kind of gives it this creepy, uncomfortable vibe. But um, let's let, let, let's continue because things are going to get a lot more uncomfortable um, going forward. Yeah. You know, golly, Sergeant Carter, <laughs> I've got syphilis. So, yeah, we we start with a musical number that is the history of the 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 chicken ranch, and the lowdown is that this whorehouse starts over a hardware store, and business is booming. So they move out to the edge of town, and generations of of deviants from this town. <laughs> Pour into the the whorehouse and, uh, you know, fill the coffers. And it's a, this huge success. And the whole deal is that, like, well, it's a it's the girlfriend experience, kind of, I guess. Where it's not just a wham-bam, thank you, ma'am. Like, the horse makes sure you don't have a, the clap and wash you down. And some people said that was the best part. Yeah, when that prostitute um, washes that guy's dick... And I think the joke is that he immediately ejaculates uh-huh. in this like like wahoo moment, and it's it it's just um, 
I, again, I think it's supposed to be funny, but it's not to me. <laughs> well, yeah. All right. So yes, that is disgusting. But then the turn the movie takes is that, oh, the reason that people called it the chicken ranch is because these poor dumb farmers would come into town, not realize that we had an official currency of the land, and try to trade chickens for fucking. In most cases, uh, the sex workers involved were like, I guess so, but keep the chickens in the bag while we're while I'm throwing you one. Yeah, it's it's you give me a chicken and then I'll touch your cock. And if that wasn't their marketing slogan, it, it certainly should have been. Well, and, and we learn earlier in the song that it's $2 a toss. So one chicken, in theory, would be $2, just so understand the the exchange rate. You and I, you know, talked about this movie, you know, as, as one of our choices. And, and one of the things that, as I watched this, I really saw it through... Um, three different lenses. And one was, you know, like view it through that lens of a musical and sort of what you can and cannot do or should or shouldn't do in a musical. And then as you pointed out, um, you know, in the intro, a lot of this is really based on a true story. And so I think with that, there are certain entrapments of what they can and can't do as far as, you know, veering out of the history of the actual chicken ranch in Texas. And then the third part when I when I looked at this movie was just viewing through the lens of is it a good movie? Like, does this make sense following the act one, act two, act three protagonist, antagonist, you know, character development and resolution. And, and at any given time, I found that I could sort of justify the behavior of the film when I used one of those three different framing devices of understanding what was going on. The problem is that it works well in each of those three, but collectively it doesn't work well across all three or just individually by one or the other. Yeah. I, I have a one of my big problems with this movie and, and it's part of it is apparent in this scene. There is a general malaise to the film. And I think in some of like the choreography that you see in the scene and even in just the pace of the song or something, it just all feels like I'm not terribly interested in it, but it's going on. I, I can see that. Like one of the things once they begin to trade the chickens and you see in the backyard that there are literally hundreds of chickens uh, in that that framework of sort of, you know, musical pseudo biographical and just as a movie that makes sense to me from a musical standpoint it's kind of over the top it's a little bit ridiculous but it's sort of clever like this is how the name of this this uh establishment you know came to be and then it carried on you know once you know the great depression or whatever it was that caused people to trade uh, uh poultry for for hand jobs well but here's another thing no they have this big field of chickens right why not just pivot into a real chicken ranch at that point? You've already got your employees and guess what? You don't have to be a, you know, a prostitute anymore. It's not their core competency. I mean, for anyone who has gone to any type of business school, you need to understand what it is that you do well and stick with that. And for them to go out and think that they're going to take on the Tysons or the Purdue's of the world, it's not going to happen. What they were good at doing was hand jobs and blow jobs and letting people have sex with them. And they knew that and they survived until the turn of events that happened in our film. Yeah. And all right, let's get back to that. Cause over the course of the song, what we learn is, Hey, we got this chicken ranch. Uh, the, the old lady uh, who ran the joint dies 
And one of her best working girls, Mona Stangley, as played by Dolly Parton, takes over. The old sheriff, who looked the other way, because this is a town full of corrupt cops, dies as well, or retires or whatever. So, Burt Reynolds, as Ed Earl Dodd, he is now going to be the uh, the new sheriff. So I don't... I don't think that this is a town full of corrupt cops and watching this a couple of times in preparation for this conversation is that I think this entire town, and I mean, every single citizen from, from a newborn to, to an elderly person who's at death's door, this is the most libertarian community I have ever witnessed on, on film ever. These people in this community, and we're going to talk about this later, they don't give two shits about what anybody in their community does. They condone it. They're okay with it. And they do not care. They don't want anybody from the outside to come in and tell them what to do. They're just, they're just, they're fine with everything. Like we don't care. I'm not hurting me, not hurting you. We're fine with that, including law enforcement. What? You know, you might be turning me around on this a little bit because right. the way you're describing it sounds pretty good. <laughs> and you're right. Like everyone in town is just like, what? The whole house? Well, yeah. yeah they, you know, yeah. They're, I, they're fine with that. I was there for when I, my 15th birthday was celebrated there. We had a clown and a prostitute. There's an old lady it, 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 later on when they interview her and she says, it's great for the, you know, the men to go up there. She's like, and some of the women too. So I've heard. And it's like, is this old lady going up there and you know, I guess maybe trading a chicken to have, you know, some sort of lesbian affair quite possibly. And apparently based on all the other people in the community, it's, it's not only, uh, you know, accepted it's condoned. It's, it's somehow uh, encouraged across the board. So we'll, we'll, we'll tap into that a little bit later. All right, and so we we get our initial setup. We meet uh, Burt Reynolds, uh, aka Ed Earl Dodd, um, and we we see him whittling a chain out of a block of wood, uh, which just shows how much time he has on his hands. And then we get the description of how he basically just fucks around all day, you know, keeps the peace in quotes, but is also like, well, he makes time to. Go socialize down at the diner, and uh, yeah, that's that's weird. When he goes to Dulcie May's diner, and, and again, this kind of through that lens of is it a good movie? They don't really connect the dots on this. That that's sort of his pseudo girlfriend wife. You know, that's sort of his legitimate piece on the side. Um, but again, it took repeat viewings to really put all that together. I, I do think it's interesting when they go through and show kind of what sort of law enforcement officer that he was. Um, there's the bit where a mule is sitting on the hood of a car and, you know, he saddles up and, and they say, you know, he believed in talking at first and with, you know, and when talking didn't work, he, you know, was a man of action and he shoots the gun. And all I kept thinking about was that horse in animal house, you know, that kind of does that, that, that jaw hook of and just falls dead. I kept wanting to see a dead mule laying in uh, uh, the downtown of the city. Unfortunately, he just, you know, scares it away. And then, and then life continues in this idyllic community. So there's uh, one line in particular in, in deputy Fred's description of the sheriff that I, I like. Uh, where he says, everyone really liked the sheriff, especially the sheriff. And I think there are even odds that wasn't in the script. 
Uh, I think I when, when I heard that, I think that it was in the script, and I think it was handwritten by Burt Reynolds himself, where he's just going through like, this will be great, you know. <laughs> just like, hey, I can't relate to this character. Now I can. <laughs> Let's punch him up and make him a little bit more of an asshole. Let's talk about the real star of this movie. Uh, and that's our, our next scene, which is uh, Dolly Parton as Mona Stangley introducing herself with, uh, I would say, maybe the second best song of the movie, really. Which is about what a hardcore pimp she is. And it is uh, like called A Little Bitty Pissant Place, I think is the name of the song. And I would argue the scenes where they actually just shut up and let Dolly Parton sing are the shining moments of the film. That's the point where it's like, this is maybe okay. Dolly Parton is an absolute delight in this film. And I know that everybody you talk to loves Dolly Parton. So that's, I know I'm saying something that's obvious, but coming off the heels of, of our, our previous review of all dogs go to heaven and, and just what a, a train wreck that is in watching this. It was so enjoyable to just watch her perform and sing. And again, having songs that in a musical, the songs themselves serve two purposes. They either progress the plot along or they provide you exposition about a character. And I think that every song arguably in this movie does that as opposed to all dogs go to heaven. All of those songs did the opposite of that. They slowed down the plot and they somehow convoluted the character. They didn't make any sense at all. First song. One of the things I, I, I noted was that I can almost ignore the tragedy that is the life of being a prostitute and or the impact of, of human trafficking because it's a musical. Yeah, we're dealing with pretty woman style prostitutes. You know, right. it's basically all, all, a all house of, full of pretty women. Or all of the horrors look like they're on their way to jazzercise by this point in the movie. Earlier on, <laughs> it was really clever in the opening setup. I like that all the horrors um, knew all of the, the dance moves of the time. You know what I mean? So like they knew the Charleston, you know, and then they knew the twist. And I'm sure if it had gone more into the eighties, they would have been pop locking or <laughs> spinning on their head or whatever. But it was like, like, you know, it's kind of clever just sort of, you know, progressing it through the time. But, but that's the whole I, point of this place, right? It's, it's like uh, when you go there, you're getting the best possible service. Like the girls are going to be polite and friendly and they're going to be able to dance with you and they're going to be outgoing, blah, blah, blah. Like, like I said, the girlfriend experience, the Sasha Gray movie, only not dark. I think that the first two songs, uh, the 20 fans are turning song, which sets up the movie. And this particular one, which is, you know, about, you know, kind of the, the nothing dirty going on. They're incredibly memorable. They're, they're very catchy. You know, they'll stick in your head if another song doesn't come in and, and kick out, you know, the tune that's rattling around. And they're, they're genuinely entertaining. At this point, I'm watch, I was watching this movie and being like, I am really enjoying this film. But there's a little bit of The Lady Doth Protest too much in this song where she gets on a high horse about pimps. And you're like, come on, Dolly. Let's not bullshit a bullshitter here. Every, like, your rules are... I pay for everything, bitches. You're going to keep yourself clean. You're mm -hmm. going to do what I tell you to do. Yep. You're not going to talk to anybody outside. You're not going to tie up the phones with your personal lives because you don't have any. You work for me now. I, I took that a step further. I was like, I don't want you on the phone like with your personal lives. I was thinking like calling like your mom or your dad. Oh, 100%. No, this is a, <laughs> this is a half step away from a cult that she's running here. But she's so delightful. I'll oh, yeah. What, I, I want to join up. Dolly Parton can giggle her way through so many scenes in this movie. When they don't know how to end a scene, she just 
like does this giggle and it's the antidote to Burt Reynolds. <laughs> it's just like that's this smug asshole response where has her giggle which i will not mock for fear of being struck by lightning is just so infectiously charming that you're you just buy into it and and it and it really really works yeah i totally agree it's it's a very fun scene and then we go to with dolly to the bank i guess the post office where the fuck are they here they're at the mayor's office and i just want to note that that the actress i didn't make a note of her name but the actress uh that she goes in and she makes a like a a donation to uh like a little league team or some sort of civic organization the woman she's talking to is the voice of mrs puff on spongebob squarepants and it's one of those voices that when you hear it it just punches you right in the nose (laughs) And so it was really strange sort of watching this and just sort of seeing her talking to Mrs. Puff, you know, which is a voice that that normally tends to come out of a, you know, a giant fish at a boating school. In this case, it's now talking to, as you said, a buxom blonde pimp. I, I didn't think that I would see that happen in my lifetime. I dreamed that it would, but I, I, you know, I don't know that it would ever come true. You know, the Koreas are back together and now this. Uh, so Mary Jo Catlett is the the actress's name. And she is proposing uh, a, a, that Dolly may get another charitable Pimp of the Year award or whatever uh, from the town. And she's like, oh, Lord, I don't know what I did. I've got a bunch in the closet now. And runs into his in, in-town wife. Dulcie uh, May. Dulcie May. And there's a, this awkward scene where she's like, well, bye. And they all say bye to each other. And it's like, man, this is almost a comedy sketch. Uh, it's just, this isn't a very funny joke if it is a joke. No, it's not. And and the one thing I really like about this scene, and what I like about this scene is how it's paid off two scenes later, because we've established that Dolly Parton is, you know, in town taking care of business, sort of greasing the wheels to make sure that she doesn't end up going to prison. And then we see Sheriff Burt Reynolds in his patrol car heading out to uh, uh, some sort of an emergency. And so she ends up, or Dolly Parton has a conversation, I think, with Deputy Fred. And he says, you know, oh, he's gone. He's going to be gone all day. And you see them talking. And so we've established, you know, that these two characters are at completely different locations. Right. And, but what we very quickly learn here is that Bert has driven out to their, their secret meeting spot and Dolly has gone after him or she gets there ahead of him somehow not sure how the math on that works he shows up she's in bed and he's immediately like what are you why are you already in bed and undressed watching you undress is my favorite part and then she kicks off the blanket and she's like look at me i've actually dressed you can you know get your rocks off like you normally do i suppose and i like i like that we the the movie is 16 minutes in and the first line of dialogue from Burt Reynolds who gets top billing and his first line of dialogue I noted is damn it. I was like that, that sounds about right. Right. That's, that was my reaction when I see his name pop up in the credits. I do like that. What he tells her, you know, I want to get you dressed up and and she says, you know, I've got uh, something sexy from Fredericks of Hollywood, Dolly Parton and Burt Reynolds in this movie genuinely have good chemistry together. And I think what, what makes it work is that she is so charismatic and and he is as well, but her charm is kind of like 80% of this and his 20% just compliments it, you know, that they work together. And when you see them talking sort of his stoicness 
and her down home country folksiness really complement each other. I, I enjoyed watching them together and I, and I'll talk about this a little later. Every scene with just the two of them talking as a couple are some of the best scenes in this whole movie, if not the absolute best scenes in this whole movie. Yeah, I, I agree. And I, as much as I give Reynolds a hard time, there he there are movies where he's a great actor. I think his performance and deliverance is really good. I think I think in this movie, and 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 I think I texted you about this as I was watching it one time or another, is that you know for him as an actor that when given a script where he's not allowed to improvise and he's given specific direction of what to do, he's really good. And there are scenes in this that I was like, I think he's really doing a good job. He's you know selling the product that that is available that is the best little whorehouse in Texas, but it's not just you know kind of this mishmash all over the place that he's sort of you know running. Uh, the show either as as you know top bill director or just you know producer movie star that he can do whatever he wants in this he's really ratcheted down and only allowed to shine when needed i i absolutely agree with you i what i was gonna say is i think in this movie more than any other we've seen so far he actually seems like he kind of gives a shit and is there in the scenes instead of just repeating what other people say and giggling and yeah, I like this scene quite a bit. There's uh, a gag with uh, underwear. Uh, Dolly has not only bought herself something uh, to show off to Ed Earl, but she buys him uh, sexy underwear as well that has snaps on it because that's a thing he can't get over. Yeah, she's like, put on the underwear. I put on this thing for you. And he refuses to for a second. And then she's like, all right, well, I'm going to leave. And he's like, all right, fine. I'm putting on the underwear. You know, but it's... It, it has to be noted now because it's going to be brought up later by me that when he looks at the underwear, he says, you know, what is this? A Japanese slingshot. And Dolly laughs at the joke and it's, you know, and it, and it works. And he makes a comment about, you know, it's so small that it's, you know, it's like, it's going to be like putting two bowling balls in a marble bag, which I'm thinking, how large are your testicles? <laughs> like, that's the analogy. If somebody said to me and said, my balls are like, like bowling balls, I'm like, dude, you need to go see a doctor now because I've seen that on the internet and it is not pretty. I mean, it's, it's really, really bad. It usually ends up involving like an old person walker and a milk crate. Yeah. How long has it been like that? And how many people have you told? <laughs> How many should you have told? Right. I mean, everyone, really, until someone convinces you to go to the doctor. But yeah, so they're fooling around, but they can't conjugate the verb here because Deputy Fred shows up to interrupt the proceedings. You know, of course, Dolly has to kind of sneak out and, you know, that their their affair is sort of a known secret, as it were. Um, I think by certain characters, and and I also want to say because it, I don't want to gloss over this, is that the the musical number that happens here before Deputy Fred shows up, the sneaking around with you. This is the only song that that Burt Reynolds sings in a musical where he has top billing, and and it and it works. You know, it's kind of like you know, baby, it's cold outside. It's this playful duet between the two of them. And again, to my point earlier, this song does a good job of establishing richness of character and it helps to move the plot along as well both through the words in the song and their actions you kind of learn you know what it is that he likes and what it is that she likes and what they like about their relationship and the understanding they have it really sort of solidifies this 
genuine sweetness and honesty. There's nothing about their relationship that is, you know, torrid or or dirty. Like you said, with it being a known secret, it's like we have this this relationship because we live in this utopic libertarian community where no one cares about anything that other people do. And maybe ultimately that's the point of the movie. <laughs> Right. Is that we should all be so lucky or how easy it is to spoil uh, such a utopia if if we uh, buy into the outrage, I suppose. Deputy Fred interrupts them, you know, uh, having sex and he tells uh, the sheriff, hey, you need to come back into town. And he says, all right, I'll be there in a minute. And then he goes back in and Dolly is gone. And then when he comes back out, he sees Dolly leaving and Deputy Fred is there and he kind of says, okay, well, I guess it's good. You can go now get dressed. And then he says, you know, Dolly Parton uh, told me to give this to you. And he holds up the underwear and he says, it's a Japanese slingshot. And I, this was one of my favorite moments of this film because it really shows that Dolly Parton's character in so many ways throughout the whole movie is the one that's the smartest one of them all that she sort of took this, gave it to him and told him, Oh, give this to the sheriff. It's a Japanese slingshot. Do you mean like I can sort of do a callback and I'm not going to be there to to see all this play out. And I, and I just absolutely love, I love the writing of it. I love the delivery. I love the setup. I was like, that was a very clever, funny joke. Um, well, I hope you're having fun, Chad. (laughs) I'm having a blast. Cause, uh, things are about to take a turn to the Deloise in a moment. But first, uh, yeah, so Bert gets called back to the mayor's office, and we have Barry Corbin in the film, uh, who, as I point out in the intro, is uh, Maurice from Northern Exposure. That's what he will always be. Every time I see his face, I think about Maurice. <laughs> yeah, he's he's fun in this. I always like seeing him show up in just about anything. But yeah, so the, the big to-do is that Melvin P. Thorpe... Uh, who we haven't met yet, but Dom DeLuise is Melvin P. Thorpe, um, is doing an expose on the chicken ranch. Ed Earl Ray immediately uh, tries to fix the situation by calling around, trying to get the, the story killed. Basically, he can't get that done, but we can get a little racist for a second. <laughs> <laughs> Which reference are, are you referring to? It's uh, it's when the governor is talking about uh, the bilingual bullshit that he has to put up with. Yeah, I made a note of that one too. Uh, yeah. Being uh, in Texas, yeah, he's like, okay, all right. So let me let me just interrupt this, and I'd like to take a quick sixty second detour. I, I had a note early on, and here's what I was trying to figure out: Who is this movie for? You know, I was surprised when the movie opened. I, I like I rented it from Amazon, and it opens with like rated R, and I was like, really? Yes, it kind of shouldn't be. It, well, here's the thing: it, for I agree, it shouldn't be rated R, and I think that all of the nudity that is included in the film could have easily been left on the cutting room floor. It's thoroughly unnecessary. In fact, you could have made this a PG rated film. The subject matter itself is inherently controversial. It didn't require that you needed to see somebody, you know, giving a blowjob. I mean, they don't go that far. But once they start to pepper in nudity, it just it doesn't add anything to the film. It's thoroughly gratuitous and really seems to be more reflective of movies of the time. You know, when you look at things like, you know, either Porky's or but other movies where it's just like, you know, having topless women running around um, was just sort of like a like a car chase. You know, I mean, you just sort of put it in there because either 
not to say that that's what audiences expected, or maybe with a movie like this, that if you didn't have that in there, people would have felt, you know, shortchanged or maybe confused by it more than they already were. But who do you think this movie is for? Because, you know, you kind of have Dolly Parton fans, you have Burt Reynolds fans, people that are going to see R-rated movies or, or, or musicals. The movie isn't overly pious from a religious standpoint. It's not making a, a, an argument against prostitution. It doesn't really have a a moral message in and of itself. And I just, the whole film, I just kept thinking, who is your target audience for this? Because anyone that you can identify is going to be potentially put off by a huge component that is the film. I mean, the box office didn't reflect that, but it just seems to be this this odd amorphous um, idea that doesn't have a clear demographic that would be plunking down dollars to go see it. Or, or like you said, a, a clear moral theme or message. That's one of the big problems with this movie is that at the end of the day, it's just some stuff that happens and it doesn't seem like anybody really learns any lessons. It's just that, uh, you know, they end up together and this happens to this character and this happens to this character. We'll get into all that, but it, yeah, I, it's a fine question. I don't think there's an answer to it, although a little bit of anecdotal evidence to support your case that maybe the answer to the question is nobody is that the, when this musical premiered uh, in 78, it did really well. When they tried to launch a revival of it, it kind of tanked. In the 80s. Yeah, and I think that it was just the salaciousness of the title and the fact that there were some catchy numbers in it and stuff. I think it was a successful musical because there wasn't anything quite like it and it was a little bawdy and et cetera, et cetera. When Sheriff Burt Reynolds gratuitously throws around the use of, of goddamn, you know, like that was something else. And so like, I was like, well, so is he, he's your hero or is he not like whose side is he on? And just sort of people's like or dislike of, of that term, but like the use of profanity across the board, I just couldn't put my finger on what is the the voice of your, of your protagonist or your hero, if you want to call them that. And who are they representing from an audience standpoint? Like, oh, I identify with this character or I identify with that character. And, and later on, I have some notes on other characters that seem to, again, sort of embrace certain views or ideologies that are very juxtaposed as to what you would you would anticipate. Well, let's cut into uh, the delicious pork shoulder that is Dom DeLuise in this film. Um, so yeah, Bert, like, like I said, tries to kill the story, can't kill the story and announces to deputy Fred, I'm going to go to Houston and, and talk to this guy myself. We are introduced to Dom DeLuise in his dressing room, which of course uh, has what the wallpaper is kind of a picture of him. In, in this room, it's it's kind of a funny gag. I think it, it's a very funny gag, and it and it would have been even funnier if you knew who he was standing with and shaking hands with. So it, it is this wall sized, floor to ceiling, side to side, huge mural of him shaking hands with the man that we are later going to find out is the governor of Texas. Right, that it's Charles Durning, and that's enough for me. I'm like, oh, you met Charles Durning. How, how good for you. <laughs> See, now if that was the case, if this became like a being John Malkovich moment where Charles Durning shows up as himself, that goes down a totally different path. But just as a movie, 
when you see Melvin P. Thorpe, who is going to be, let's call him our antagonist in the film, shaking hands with someone else, like, I don't know who the someone else is. That character should have been introduced much earlier in the film. And maybe in some director's cut, from what I understand is two and a half hours long, would have been introduced earlier. Because when we meet that character, like, I don't know, at the beginning of Act 3, halfway through Act 3, it you don't really, you, I don't know that the, the general audience is going to connect those dots of, oh, that was the guy he was shaking hands with. Oh, I'm Absolutely not. Why on earth would you ever pay attention to it and only watching a second time, which is also something I don't know that I would recommend, uh, is the only way you, you pick up on it. It's the same thing with the diner thing. Like, there's no reason to know that, you know, Dulcie May uh, and Burt Reynolds are a thing until you're told later. And then you've got to, like, cast your mind back to, oh, okay, yeah, he was sitting at her diner. Okay. I guess that retroactively makes some sense. Dom DeLuise is how to describe him. He he's got kind of a Dutch boy haircut. He is not quite giant Dom DeLuise yet, but he's definitely fat Dom DeLuise. And in the scene, he is squeezing into a girdle and like spinal tap stuffing shit into his pants to make his dick look bigger. He has shoulder pads that he that he puts on. And as a character, again, going through that lens as a musical, I thought that this is a great introduction of this character. That is a watchdog who is a harbinger for truth and honesty and uncovering falsity, uh, you know, wherever it may be found. And that he's, you know, putting in a, a big sock to make his cock look huge. And, you know, he's, he clearly is wearing a wig and he's sucking in his gut. Like everything about him is disingenuous and fake. And I was like, that's, that's clever. That's fine. That works in a musical. I think Dom DeLuise really enjoyed being in a role where he could look at Burt Reynolds and tell him to go fuck himself. Cause every other movie <laughs> I've seen with Burt Reynolds and Dom DeLuise, Dom DeLuise is always the number two. He's the Lou Costello. He's constantly getting shit on. He's getting slapped in the face. And in this movie, he gets to tell Burt Reynolds, stick it up your ass sideways. You arrogant piece of shit. I'm in charge. And he gets to dress like Cowboy Liberace. It's fantastic. And he's from New Jersey. You make every, and even his accent in this, and maybe I'm just giving him way too much credit. His accent is so phony and fake the way that he holds his his drawl is it's it's almost either too short or or way too long <laughs> like it's just he's so much fun to watch as i don't call him the bad guy he's just sort of the like the catalyst for change or something i would say he's the antagonist like because he in very obviously lies to bert in this scene because he says you know what i'm no moralizer all we do is report it's not going to be a big deal where it's not gonna be a big dog and pony show and then immediately goes on stage and bites like Bert to the booth to watch the show being taped and then immediately turns it into a dog and pony show about the chicken ranch <laughs> where there's like, like he quotes the bible numerous times but then kind of says like i didn't really quote the bible he's so inconsistent with his points of view and his perspectives, even him talking about the idea of beware the power of television. You know, he says, I could make the mayor's own children throw rocks at him. Is this guy coming at this from the angle of televangelist? And the answer is no. Is he coming at it from, from the perspective of I am, I'm here to fight for the little guy. The answer is no. He's coming at it from the perspective of 
I'm looking at this as television, as an opportunity to bolster my celebrity and how I can continue to grow. Cause he wants to go from these little markets to Houston to syndication. And he's using this as a medium for his own purposes. This is just someone who is seeing the ability to take television and wield it for their own just personal gain. He doesn't care about anyone else in this film except himself. Yeah, he's of the P.T. Barnum, Donald yes. Trump stripe of like, he's just a huckster. That's all he is. And and this <laughs> is his angle. And and so he's on the grift, too. Um, but so his grift is like, I, I want it. I'm going to be this salacious gotcha journalist. And and this leads to a bunch of dancers uh, prancing around behind him as they sing. Texas has a whorehouse in it. Which it's a great song. It's pretty good. It's I a think. great song. <laughs> Let me ask you a question. When you watch this, the scene where Melvin P. Thorpe calls out the sheriff, who's up in sort of the, the I don't know, like the, the sponsor's box. When he calls him out and he points to the sheriff and everyone in the audience turned their head in unison. Did that remind you in any way of the Blues Brothers or the Muppet movie in that similar contemporary musicals of this time period in the mid eighties, where the musical motion picture ridiculousness fell into certain trappings. And I think that this song even continues forward where all of the people who are watching this television show um, are hearing about the chicken ranch. And we see people in the hospital where someone is accidentally pouring medicine down a person's mouth. And there's a guy robbing a convenience store and it's on in the background and it takes on this life of silliness. And it just made me think of so many other musicals that seem to follow this same wacky visual gag. Let me take you down the rabbit hole a little deeper here, Chad. <laughs> because for a movie, and you know, the character of Melvin P. Thorpe says essentially in the in the line about the the mayor's kids, like I I can use my podium and and completely entrance an audience. And so when we see the audience not only do they turn in unison to Bert, when we cut back to them later in the song and dance number, they're all swaying in unison as well, which is, uh, you know, I, I don't know if it's intentionally smart, but I think it is. Do you think that if he had started chanting, lock her up, that they would have, have chimed in in kind? I'm surprised one of them didn't start it. <laughs> <laughs> it, yeah, it's weird to see that many white people together in a big room without someone belting out Locker Up. <laughs> anyway, yeah, so we have this this great song, The Chicken Ranch, and we see all the these people reacting, and, and the reactions get increasingly more shocked. Like, oh my goodness, there's a whorehouse. Then we, we cut back to the Chicken Ranch itself, and Mona and Ed Earl uh, are talking about what's gone down ed earl in particular is saying like hey i think this guy could be some trouble but dolly just seems amused by it all like she's a real like we were talking about she's kind of a toughest cookie sort of character she's she says and i quote people been jumping on me for one reason or another yeah <laughs> my whole life good even in this moment, I found myself just being overwhelmed with with charm with when she and Burt Reynolds are talking, when she looks at him and she just says, I trust you. You know, you're my protector. It was to me that was sort of, you know, peeling back another a layer of understanding the depth of their relationship. You know, we have something that may be seen as sort of this superficial on the side hookup session, but 
we've we've got history. You know what I mean? You and me. And there, there's more going on here than maybe the two of us initially want to own up to. Another great line in this scene, Ed Earl is warning her about this guy. She And, and she's talking about getting jumped on for one reason or another. She says, you know, these people pop up every now and again. There are a bunch of people who confuse crime with sin. That's a great line. <laughs> it's, it's a real good line. And yeah, I mean, like you said, she is just an, an absolute delight in this scene and every scene she's in pretty much. The important part of this is her placing Ed Earl in the role of protector. Like, you're going to kind of take care of this and I trust you to do that. Plot-wise, I mean. Gomer shows up. He says, well, this Melvin P. Thorpe cat is in town. When he's walking into the, the chicken ranch, one of the whores asks him, how's your tallywhacker? How's my what? <laughs> what? Like, you know, she means your dick. Like, well, then just say that. Who says tallywhacker? Uh, Mojo Nixon, for one, and that's all I need. That's That <laughs> seals into my vocabulary for life. You know what? I stand corrected. <laughs> I mean... If your store don't have Mojo Nixon, your store could use some fixing. Um, so yeah, Melvin P. Thorpe is in fact uh, here in town. So he's he's doing this broadcast. Bird shows up, and th- they start arguing, and it and it's escalating. Of course, it's all on camera. But one of the things that blew my mind in this is that as this confrontation is occurring. Someone in the background regarding the sheriff says, he may be mean, but at least he's ours. And someone else yells out, kick his ass, sheriff. This is the epicenter of libertarianism in this country. There's like some outsiders come into our town to shut down our whorehouse. Hey, sheriff, go kick that guy's ass. Like, <laughs> What? It, it's a pretty great moment. And anyway, so Bert eventually like has to leave because things are starting to turn on him. I am saying and doing things that are now being caught on camera. When he and Melvin have their confrontation, he goes in. A couple things. One, I, I don't think that we've seen a Burt Reynolds movie in this series where he hasn't degraded someone by commenting on their physical appearance. And in this confrontation with Melvin, he refers to him as a fancified fart which is just commenting on his clothes, which that's not his physical appearance, you know, as God made him. But he does call him his his uh, little fat buddy, which <laughs> is probably just his general pet name for for Dom DeLuise that somehow happened to slip out. And <laughs> right. and that's and what, in the, what's on DeLuise's business cards? <laughs> I think it's what's on his on his tombstone. Oh wow! When when he this is the scene where Dom DeLuise really stands up. To Burt Reynolds, you know, and just starts mouthing off to him, like, what are you going to do? I mean, the cameras are there. And, you know, when the sheriff, Burt Reynolds, just kind of bows up and laces into Melvin with this string of profanity where he is just liberally throwing around, goddamn, and he uses it no less than three times. And then he also calls Houston a stinkhole, which I lived in Texas for a while. I was a little surprised that a fellow Texan would refer to another city as being, you know, less than in any, you know, way or another. At this moment, the entire town is behind Sheriff Burt Reynolds. They, you know, they want him to beat up this outsider. Burt ends up uh, firing his gun, uh, which uh, then scares Dom DeLuise at all off and and he actually does like a twirl of the gun even as he's putting the the gun away and the 
the crowd goes nuts and they're like, Sheriff, you uh you sure kicked that city fella's ass. This town is okay with everything. They're okay with whores, they're okay with weed, they would be okay with drinking in public, they would be okay with people taking a shit on the sidewalk. I don't think that they care about anything at all. So to celebrate, uh Bert and Dolly run to the woods to get drunk together in what is probably my favorite scene of the film and so it's just a really nice scene with them out in the middle of nowhere just kind of chit-chatting with one another around a campfire we learn a couple of important things here one that dolly has maybe an unhealthy fixation with ufos and and really sounds like kind of an ancient aliens nut a little bit It's also the first, it's the, I, I don't say it's the one, it's the first time in the movie where we get to hear the Burt Reynolds. Yeah. <laughs> he lets it slip a little bit. Yeah. He definitely does that. But you know, they talk about uh, religion. They talk about respect. They talk about their past. And I think in this moment, you get to know everything that you need to know about, you know, Sheriff Burt Reynolds. And and Dolly Parton's character, especially when they get to the point where they kind of begin to share their their hopes and dreams, either things that they want to do in the future or things that they wanted to do in the past. Yeah. And there's my my favorite moment is where they kind of divulge to one another in this moment of, of sort of openness and honesty that. Dolly says, like, I, you know, I got to tell you something. You may not believe this, but I'm, I'm not with anybody else but you now and haven't been for some time. And then Bert says the same in kind and says, you know, it's been three years since he's been with anyone else but her. And they are accidentally monogamous, you know, <laughs> through no yeah. discussion of their own. It, but it is a nice, a nice moment and a nice way to describe their relationship of like, they're there because they want to be. And they're like, there is no rules around them to, to force them together. There's no marriage. There's no social expectation or anything like that. They're just with, with each other because they choose to be, and they like each other. It's probably one of the most honest, idyllic, I don't know, forthright relationships that I've seen in a movie in quite some time. I mean, you look at romantic comedies or, or other things that it's really contrived or, or set up or over the top. And, and to your point, they're choosing to be there period. And it's a really beautiful moment. And when, you know, when Burt Reynolds uh, confesses to her that, you know, he's thinking about running for state legislature, you know, that, that he's an honest man, like I'm trying to do the right thing. Coupled with that, you know, Dolly Parton, you know, in kind, tells him that she had dreams when she was younger of being a ballerina. And when he, you know, tells his dream of, of running for legislature, she supports it. And then when she tells, you know, of her, her uh, kind of past dream of, of being a dancer, he supports that. So he's like, you know, you could start now. He's like, you could start training. You could start jumping around and Dolly Parton in, in one of the most, you know, Dolly Parton moments when she said, she says me jumping up and down, I'd black both my eyes and she just giggles <laughs> through it. And it's so self-deprecating. It is such a funny joke. I laughed out loud and she's laughing with me, you know, as I'm watching this, like that was a very, very funny moment. Yeah. It's, it's, (laughs) it really is a terrific scene. And I I wish the whole movie were that good. Instead, we cut away from uh, this because Melvin P. Thorpe has a, a a new expose or continuing expose 
on uh, the chicken ranch, and this time it, it's using footage of Bert cursing and shooting up the place. Dolly is uh, there with him and, and sees it as well. Then we have a meeting at the sheriff's office where all the, the town elders are, are kind of waiting uh, for him. We, we've got the mayor, we've got Deputy Fred. Uh, newspaper editor. Yeah, newspaper editor. And there's a really uncomfortable moment here where Deputy Fred is like, you know, my wife's on was shocked. Uh, him saying, they bleeped it all out, but you could read his lips. And he was saying shit and goddamn. <laughs> and you're like, I don't want to see him say these words. No, it goes back to him talking about, uh, you know, it was the nicest little whorehouse you ever saw. I don't need to hear these words coming out of his mouth. I really enjoyed watching throughout this movie, Burt Reynolds swear profusely. And I got to tell you, at a certain moment, I felt like, you know what this looks like? It's like if you took the bandit and you took Buford T. Justice and you put him in the fly machine and sort of let it <laughs> pop around. This is who comes out. It's Burt Reynolds in a sheriff's uniform, just swearing profusely and having sex with prostitutes. Excuse me, prostitute. You know, one character we haven't talked about at all, I think her name was Porky. At the, the chicken ranch, she is a, uh, she's a black woman. She's a heavyset lady. And, and I, I don't have in my notes the name of the actress, but she was the, the title character in a, I guess, 1970s, 1980s sitcom called That's My Mama. But for, for people of another generation, she was Billy Madison's, I guess, like nanny or something yeah. like this. Throughout this entire film, every time she would, you know, make a comment, all I could hear was, you know, Adam Sandler screaming, you are so gross. <laughs> the gross actress in question, Teresa Merritt. Yeah, so Ederl finally shows up at this intervention. It's the first point where we see things like are really starting to turn, you know, like everybody's starting to feel a little pressure now that Melvin Thorpe is airing all these stories. And even Barry Corbin is like, look, we just want to keep it quiet. And now that it's not quiet anymore, maybe we got to start thinking about shutting it down. I think that everyone in this town in and of themselves, they are basically cool with anything. The only thing that they're not cool with is other people not being cool with stuff. You mean like when other people kind of start raising a stink, they're like, oh, maybe they got a point. You know, like, like we don't want you to come in here and sort of rock the boat, like knock it off. Well, and they list like Bert's criminal activities as they're saying like, hey, we don't, we were happy to look the other way when it was just speed traps or fixing a ticket or looking the other way or a kid stealing a car for going for a joyride. What? Yeah, running gank through the town, whatever, Ed Earl <laughs> burning down businesses for the insurance money. We're fine. Keeping, with that. The, keeping the Irish out. We appreciate no. all your hard work Ed Earl, but dog fights, cock fights, it, we're okay with anything, Ed Earl. It's just other people coming in here is somehow ruffling our feathers. We got to close the chicken ranch for a few days. And the, and so that's the ultimate decision. Bert makes a, a stand and is like, no one's going to tell me how to, how to handle this. And then goes out to the, uh, the chicken ranch and asks Dolly, like, hey, just... I just need you to shut down for a few days, just for a few days. We'll let all this blow over and everything's going to be cool. And she agrees because he's her protector. She trusts him and says, okay, I'll do that. 
they're gonna they're gonna shut everything down for two months. But Dolly um almost immediately uh, reneges on this deal because once he leaves, then the help reminds Dolly that hey, there's that big Texas A and M game, and which is is set up uh, in at, in the beginning by Deputy Fred, who says like, hey, people say it all began. The, that all the trouble started after this game. So now we are we now see that the game is about to happen, and the tradition is that the winning team comes to the chicken ranch uh, to celebrate the victory. In the in the movie, there's an unnecessarily long period of time where we're watching this game, waiting for the winner. As I watch it, I was like, just get to the point. I don't care who wins. It doesn't matter who wins, but they really sort of build up some sort of, I don't know, like like half-assed tension. Although in the scene, uh, as you're kind of watching other people watch the game, uh, Sheriff Burt Reynolds is over at Dulcie May's house, and she's got a kid, which I, I would love to sort of see another movie about what was going on there. But when they're uh, watching it, did you see that Sheriff Burt Reynolds gives the kid a beer and the kid drinks it? Oh, yeah, that's and on was, my list of criminal activities, yes. Yeah, and I, and. I, <laughs> And again, I'm like in this town, like, like he's eight, he drinks, you know what? I'm cool with that. <laughs> like, what's your problem? You got, you got a problem with, with children consuming alcohol, whatever square. <laughs> There's such a thing as being too liberal and this town may have reached that point. <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> I don't know that you want eight year olds drinking is all I'm saying. As long as they're not driving. I got no problem with that. You know he's going to be. <laughs> <laughs> and there's no one to stop him. So, we got I'm going to I'm going to go ahead and break the seal on uh, the next scene. Texas A&M wins and the next musical number immediately feels like gay porn. <laughs> it totally does. I don't know that every actor portraying a football player in this scene is gay, but it, it, I would be hard pressed to pick out the one who's straight. If you, if you told me that at one point when they're in the shower and they're naked and you see all of their asses, um, I think one guy actually slaps another guy's dick in the shower in watching this film with others. They said he just slapped him on the hand, but I'm still going to say that he slapped this guy's cock. And I also want to note that if this is a football team, it is a football team filled with nothing but place kickers and wide receivers. Because if anyone weighs <laughs> over 150 pounds on this football team, I did not see them. They just danced their way to victory, apparently. I, I assume that it's all done with fancy footwork. This had to just be a big gay fuck pit in the dressing room. <laughs> I think that the only group of of gentlemen that I think I've seen that were more macho in a similar light were Robin Hood's band of merry men in Shrek. It was that level of almost like cartoonish traditional Broadway dancer, right? And it, it and it does not it does not work well. It, and that and is it, most certainly what's going on here. Is hey, let's get a bunch of professional dancers to do this, but. Professional dancers do not convincing football players make. Well, to, to compound the problem, once they go from being naked and slapping each other on the ass and the and theoretically on the dick, that they all then get dressed up in their cowboy dressings, and every single one of them looks like they are dressed up as the cowboy from the village people. <laughs> right. It's a lot of pastels. You're seeing a lot of neckerchiefs happening. 
tassels. Uh, it, there's just there's a lot going on here. And the premise of all of this, like again, because I'm immature, the the entire time I'm watching, I'm like, oh my goodness, just you know, for these young strapping gay men to be cast in a Hollywood movie, that must have been a delight for them. And then we're immediately asked to believe that they're super excited to go have heterosexual sex. So they jump into a big gay bus, which has a blowout. So then they have to hitch a ride on a big gay truck. I got to ask you a question. So when the bus has the blowout, I don't understand why that happens in the plot. There's no reason that that happens that, that I can, that I can put together. But I wanted to ask you because they're football players and their bus breaks down. Cause you know, some of them had to go pee because they're drinking beer and they're dumping it out and they're all like on the bus and hanging out of the bus. There's one guy like strapped to the front of the bus. It's like some sort of like, like Texas Mad Max scenario where they're just like going through the middle of nowhere. But when they break down, did you wonder if any of the football players went off together and uh, peed shoulder to shoulder like those football players in Jeepers Creepers 2 did? <laughs> I didn't make that immediate association. I assumed everyone on that bus had fucked someone else on that bus. By During the, time, the bus trip? Yeah, by the time the blowout happened, they'd already gone through rounds one and two. And only the blowout prevented three and four before uh, arriving at the chicken <laughs> ranch. So they all pile on to this old farmer's pickup truck, and they look like they look like like you know those trains in India. You mean like where you just have people hanging off the sides? Like people are hanging off, hanging off of people, and I don't understand again why this happens. But they finally show up at the the whorehouse when they walk into the back. Uh, Dolly Parton says you want to do something special and they all go back and every like the 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 trees in the the courtyard are filled with Chinese lanterns all the macho football players come in the back and they genuinely seem a little dazzled by this well, <laughs> Just sure. like, like like this is lovely yeah it's like they did this uh, faux homecoming theme and yeah I think there's a lot of appreciation uh, of of the effort that it took Let's do some quick math here. I know the math of this, and it's going to involve one plus one, but continue. (laughs) So we have, say, 98 honkies and two African-Americans. Now, we are dancing and twirling around, but by sheer luck, somehow the two African-American dancers found each other Mm -hmm. in this mix of people. Because at no point do either of them dance with a white person, and it was really uncomfortable. Even in, I think, even in Texas, and even in the, the world that is this movie, they do not want to ruffle the feathers with interracial sex uh, and prostitution. I think there, that is the line in the sand that this that this movie is not willing to cross. It is deeply weird, though. In again, viewing through modern eyes, it's just one of those things that's like. Oh, oh. But yeah, so there is a big uh, song and dance number here as the football players uh, enjoy their heterosexual sex. Well, during the dance number, the gay cowboys are dancing with prostitutes who are wearing uh, Fredericks of Hollywood lingerie and cowboy boots. 
And it is an it is an extended dance number. It goes on and on and on. And in fact, I would say that if anyone goes back and watches this again, which I never will, I feel like that the song is a almost a remix of the Bare Necessities from the Jungle Book. If you listen to it, you will hear um, hints of that bubbling up in that song. But once they get done dancing, everyone then retires to go fuck. <laughs> right. That is almost precisely my note there. <laughs> it, yeah, but but here's the problem is that from the time we left Dolly and Bert at the the campfire, the movie has started to slowly drag. This whole football sequence from the big game starting to everyone watching it to them showing up to the dance number in the locker room, all that stuff, it just takes forever. Yeah. And none of it's very good. So anyway, back to our story. Um, <laughs> Deputy Fred sees Melvin show up in town and he goes to Ed Earl and lets it spill that the chicken ranch is still open. And there's this moment of like, what are you talking about? They agreed to shut it down. And Deputy Fred's like, no, I saw a bunch of football players headed in and whatnot. Melvin, meanwhile, is sneaking up on the the chicken ranch, all stealthy-like. And they bust in and throw on the lights and start taking pictures of all these football players fucking. And we get, uh, like, shots. There are threesomes. And the coach is getting, like, tickled by a feather duster. And somebody's getting cornhole, probably. <laughs> They're doing the drugs. I think Melvin yells out, like, They're smoking cocaine! And the senator, we haven't really talked too much about him. He's kind of their sponsor. He's in there, you know, having sex with a prostitute. But again, this this is the scene in the movie where it's just, what was it that Buford G. Justice said? You know, their their knockers are jiggling or whatever. I mean, it's... Uh-huh. it's Ass is a-waggling. All of this, they're just, they're just bouncing around all over the place. It's really unnecessary in a way. I mean, it's, it's a chaotic scene. It's not really funny. It's, it's kind of uncomfortable, but then, you know, Sheriff Burt Reynolds and, you know, Deputy Fred show up late and Melvin gets away and kind of gives him the finger. And he's like, I got footage. Ha ha ha. You know, we'll see you later. And then Dolly's standing there looking apologetic and Sheriff Burt Reynolds is rightfully disappointed because she gave him his word. Yeah. And, and so we come to a big argument between the two of them. It's kind of the big emotional uh, turning point of the film. Bert rightfully is like, hey man, like you just agreed that you were going to shut this down and you lied to me. And she admits she made a mistake. She says that freely. She, She absolutely does, but then proceeds to dress him down in one of the most satisfying ways I've ever seen in a movie. It just felt like for a second I could live vicariously through her and just yell at him. She is like, you're never going to be shit. You're never going to be a state senator. Um, you know, you can give up your idea of going to the legislature, which is what they keep calling it in this movie uh, annoyingly. But again, but I think that knowing their relationship, she knew all of the the soft spots that she could hit that would hurt him most and again just like in any like real relationship you know you're kind of in a situation where she's angry and upset she's angry with herself she's angry with the circumstance I mean, everything is just falling apart and she just unleashes on him you know you weren't here to protect me but i was wrong and then that's where 
he turns around in kind and unleashes on her. Yeah, and he ends up uh, calling her a whore. That's kind of the punchline of the argument, is once he's crossed that line, that's sort of where they're both like, all right, we're both walking away from this. I don't know what kind of direction he was given or what the circumstances were around the finale of this scene, but when they're both genuinely hurt and there's a shot of Burt Reynolds looking at her and either one, he was acting and he looks really sad and he looks broken and he looks damaged. And it's just like, this is really gone. Like you lied to me. You've said these hateful things to me. I'm upset with myself because I said hateful things to you. There's also part of me that's like, do you think he was just high? Like, did he just smoke a huge (laughs) joint? Do you know what I mean? And they were like, stand over there and they're like, and action. And cut. That's a wrap, folks. We're good to go. But either way, it Best it acting works. lesson I ever got was do nothing. <laughs> but, it, but it works. And, and for me, again, as a musical, um, the scene, again, has sort of this, this heightened sense of, of emotion. And, and it plays well. Yeah, it's like, again, the, the moments between the two of them, the personal moments, are, are, are pretty good. And, and this is no exception. It, it is a heated scene. And, and it does feel like a smack in the face when he calls her a whore. It's just like, well, shit, things got fucking real in this movie. Yeah. But uh, anyway, so they have their big fight. And then Bert goes to wander the landscape for a while while everything in town is is starting to get even more heightened. The chicken ranch is being completely shut down. And the senator who got caught there, funnily enough, in his press conference, blames communists for seducing him. That was back when the Russians were the bad guys. <laughs> oh, oh, Yeah. That uh, it, it's nice to see that oldie but a goodie coming back in his style. Did you see? Did you notice when Melvin when he goes in and he says he's got a he has like a law that he's going to bring up to the legislature to uh, you know I don't know shut down the chicken ranch and he turns out and he holds it up and it looked like Trump uh, you know whenever he signs one of his you know presidential <laughs> decrees or whatever right. he's holding it up he turns it around to him and he shows it off. Dom DeLuise is having so much fun in this movie that that it's just it's just fun to watch him played this you know smarmy asshole yeah he's having a good time we're, we're about to hit charles durning who seems to be having a ball as well but one during this scene we start to get some feedback from the townsfolk right like this is the point where we hear the old lady talk about like well the chicken ranch i you know i've heard some ladies go up there too um <laughs> it, it's that and they the, the chicken ranch attracts business they pay their taxes no one was forced to go up there um, I think the most compelling argument <laughs> is that, look, young boys are going to be chasing women. This isn't verbatim, but it's pretty close. And if if they don't go up there, they'll get to raping women or get diseases from some other women. I cannot argue with that man's logic. At all. I, I, I'm not 100% that's how it works, but all right. That's how it works in this town. <laughs> right, in in libertarian Texas. It takes a village. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so then, then we cut to the next scene where the town elders have uh, gotten together to figure out, you know, how hard they should be wringing their hands and what they're going to, you know, what they're going to do next. And this had uh, the, the second time in this movie that made me laugh out loud. 
And it was the scene where they're talking about kind of the sexual, he, the papers that are talking about the sexual revolution and how, you know, what happens up at the chicken ranch and with Miss Mona ain't obscene. And then he says, you know, two blocks from the state Capitol, he was like, you can get anything done there as you can at Miss Mona's, including tongue baths, or you can get your ass tickled with a feather. And then he follows it up later in their conversation saying that that's what he thinks heaven would be like. You get your ass tickled with a feather. Yeah. That's a guy who's tickled his asshole with a feather a lot. <laughs> or he's paid for it. Uh, either way. It's like he is speaking <laughs> with authority. That's the paper's editor. Like that's the, that's his, 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 his journalistic integrity is coming from the stance of, of anybody can get their asshole tickled with a feather if they want. And if that isn't libertarian, I don't know what is. But no, I'm not sure. That op-ed page is a mess. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's, you know, that gets, that gets read first over the obituaries by the people in this town. It's everything from <laughs> rectal tickling to taint tickling. I think the headline every day is who gives a shit, who gives a fuck. <laughs> <laughs> the byline is who cares <laughs> so so there was one other the, the, another scene of this that that is just an absolute delight for all the wrong reasons is that you know things have fallen apart and uh when sheriff burt reynolds leaves the the town hall uh or they're at dulcie mays eating you know pie or whatever and talking about ass tickling with feathers he walks out and dulcie may again his his girlfriend pseudo you know, whatever wife, um, she follows him out and she looks at Sheriff Burt Reynolds and she says, I wish there was something that I could do to help. And then he looks at Dulcie May and he, he says, how can I close her down when all I want is for her to stay? I submit for the record that that is the last thing this woman was wanting to hear and or expecting to hear of <laughs> Is there anything I can do to help your life be better? Because this has gone so bad. And it's like, you know what? Uh, you know, this other woman who I really love more than you and like more than you, who's a prostitute, she's the one who has my heart. Well, you know what? Let me know if there's anything I can do to help you out. Right. Yeah. Anything I can help with? Can you be my emotionless, identityless sounding board? For my prostitute love problems. Also, your kid took the car the other day after a few beers. I haven't seen him since. Don't worry. I'm not going to lock him up. I can look the other way. I've got a lot of experience in this. <laughs> we'll roll it all up into a loitering misdemeanor. <laughs> we then go in and meet the governor of the great state of Texas, Charles Durning. Or as For I put it in my notes, finally Charles Durning. <laughs> And then they, they ask him how he feels about the Middle East. And he says, the Jews and Arabs need to settle their dispute in a very Christian manner. And again, through the lens of a, of a musical. And it's like, okay, this guy's sort of, you know, this Southern racist caricature. I was like, that's, that's, you know, it, it, the joke is what it is. It's not offensive, but it's, you know, it's just, it, it's, it's that joke. Well, and it's a big song and dance number that he, he starts singing about how he's a great waffler. Like he can say a lot, but not really say anything. It's kind of a political truism turned into a musical number. Worst song of the movie. It, it is terrible. And also I submit to our jury, we have just gone from this big fight to, okay, it, it looks like we're going to have to shut 
the whorehouse down. We have the scene of Bert kind of backhandedly <laughs> telling his his work wife that he, he wants to be with uh, Mona. And then we cut away from all of that and just slam the brakes on the movie for five, ten minutes to do this musical number. And it's like, well, whatever emotional steam was built up here, in, you know, and, and, and sort of plot momentum is just wasted now because we're, we're, we got to start back from jump again. I suddenly don't give a shit about what's happening in this movie, which is crazy because I love Charles Durning. Yeah, he's a good song and dance man in this. He And even the, the choreography of this, he looks like a fat Michigan Jay Frog. You mean there's a lot of high stepping, yeah. and 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 he's 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 you know he's futzing with his hat and doing his thing, and he's got this weird thing where he turns it sideways and then twists his head to go into it, which I found terribly annoying. Again, it, it, it's a terrible song, and then uh, Sheriff Burt Reynolds eventually shows up uh, at the Capitol after Melvin confronts the governor and says, you know, hey, look, we need to shut down the chicken ranch for good, and again, the governor doesn't do anything unless you know the polls support this decision right and and that's sort of the the grand joke of this is that the the real deciders are in fact uh the pollsters and charles durning goes out and kind of announces like hey we're we're officially gonna stop the the chicken ranch melvin thorpe gets put on people's shoulders and it is carried around it's like a big big to do but it's also kind of a bummer because it's like well that's not how like when Bert makes his big emotional pitch of like this is why we need to keep it open not only like he does it it helps business and stuff like that but it's just like it's a charitable institution it's part of the town this is all just going to be decided by by raw numbers and it's kind of a bummer of the film you know and and that's sort of the the tail end of this movie is that it it's all just this slow fizzle. Yeah, the, our, our antagonist does not get his comeuppance. Even at the end, our heroes lose. Which again, going back to sort of my construct earlier, is that viewing it through the lens of this is based on a true story. This is what happened. I mean, they shut it down, and 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 this this watchdog character won. But when Burt Reynolds goes back in, the only comeuppance that happens is that he snatches off you know Melvin's hair mm. and then punches him in the face so hard that a slide whistle. Uh, noise comes out of him. He hits the sound effect guy. <laughs> he slides a, across the floor, but we never see Melvin again. And and for him being such a bad guy, and really, if you look at other movies of that time, you may have a situation where you know your antagonist achieves their goal, but they get their comeuppance. And in this one, you know, a mouthful of teeth isn't as satisfying as him being exposed as the hypocrite that he is. And I don't know that snatching off his hair. Um, shows that he is as self-serving and I don't know, just just kind of an asshole. Um, and the, the, you would see that the people would still be behind him, um, even though he was incapable of uh, having Mexico build the wall that he promised. I'm sorry, what were we talking about? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, now that we have uh, a shitty resolution to the Melvin storyline, pretty much. We gotta, we gotta, we gotta write this plane. Pull it up. We're, we're about to crash. Come on, pull it up, pull it up. Right. Like, but even if you put both hands on the stick, come on. The problem is the next scene. It's like, well, let's not even have them in the same room. Let's have them talking to each other on the phone, and it's okay. But it, it's you know the sheriff calling to tell Mona, like, hey, I got to shut you down. The 
the governor's made a decision. The sooner you do it, the better. He, you know, there, there is an apology there about what what they said the the last time they spoke. They both apologized to one another in a very sincere fashion, and I think that they mean it. Um, but to, I think your point's right, though, that the fact that it's over the phone, it isn't as intimate as all of the other exchanges that the two characters have had. Yeah, and it's just not as much fun. Like, why not have these two in the same room? Why doesn't he go out there to tell her this? And I, I mean, you could argue the plot reason of like, well, they're in a fight and they're not getting along right now or whatever. But it's like, yeah, that just seems dumb. Well, the next song, again, to continue the sort of the downward spiral, is this sad sack song of Hard Candy Christmas. <laughs> I don't, I, I didn't know this song. Uh, people that I talked to while watching it were very familiar with it, to which I was like, you know, so whenever I hear this song, if it comes on the radio during the holidays, I'm going to think about whores packing up their shit and, you know, trying to figure out where they're going to go. One of them's going to get drunk on apple wine and they essentially all hop on a Greyhound bus to go to, Las Vegas or, you know, whatever shitberg town that they're going to end up in as far as their, their whore careers take them. Well, but the, the point of the song is like, here are all these pleasant, innocent, hopeful dreams I have. Oh, nah, it's probably just going to be my shitty old life again. And way to go. Way to go, whores. <laughs> right. It's a real kicking them when they're down kind of situation. And I don't, it, it does seem like a weirdly dark tone for this movie to end on because it's kind of like we kind of are at the end of this movie in a roundabout way even though it takes another you know 20 fucking minutes to get there it's like hey we're gonna see all the all the girls off everyone is going on to to do whatever we're shuttering the whole place we're packing our shit up i mean it is full-on we're done up to and including, like you said, the whatever the opposite of the big gay football bus is, this is what this is. It's a greyhound full of sad prostitutes. <laughs> I would love to see those two those two vehicles just like crash into each other and see, see what happens. Oh, well, there would be singing and dancing, that's for sure. <laughs> a lot of crying. Uh, yeah. Not a lot, not not a lot of sex though. The, the, the next scene after this, I found really troubling because we again we start out with Deputy Fred kind of telling this story, and then he's like he's like, well then let's let's go back and it started on this day, and the timeline they just bounce around. So we we cut to Jim Neighbors, Deputy Fred, Gomer Pyle, whatever you want to call him, and and he he says that uh, um, he's now the sheriff. And that uh, Burt Reynolds is in the state legislature, which you're like, well, that sounds good. And he was like, but wait a minute, we got to have another flashback. Right. Let's tag some more onto this movie and do an Animal House style. Where are they now? Right. But but, but we're, we're doing the where are they now? And the, it's not at the where are they now? It's like, well, where were they then? Because I just told you where they are now. So then we flashback. And so we flash forward to then flashback. Co correct, which doesn't make any sense. And then we have Sheriff Burt Reynolds show up at the whorehouse. The whole house is boarded up like some sort of, I don't know, haunted house. Like, I don't know why they would do that. Either they're expecting a hurricane or some sort of property inspector. And um, he, he shows up and he tells her that he loves her and she loves him. And quite honestly, the movie should end there. That is that they should say they should just say the end roll credits they kiss and then we're good to go. Yep. But that's not but that's not what happened. Nope. Uh, instead, we got to stroll around the haunted house talking about who's buying the floor joints and shit. 
And then um, Bert does say, like, you know, come with me. And we decide to have one more song. It's unnecessary. A completely unnecessary song because we've already sort of, like you said, all we got to do is have them see each other. Him ask her to come with him. They run into each other's arms. Roll credits. And instead, she's got to be like, I can't go with you. And then she sings, I Will Always Love You, which wasn't in the musical. It's an original song from uh, Dolly Parton. And it's just an excuse for her to sing a great song. It is a great song, and I love hearing her sing it. It just doesn't belong in this movie. And it's the shooting of this sequence is so dull. It's just her standing there singing. There's no... What I thought about was in Little Shop of Horrors, the uh, uh, Suddenly Seymour thing, where it, like there's a point where the camera's moving and the song is soaring, and it, it's this great emotional moment. And that's what this ought to be, and it just doesn't get there. Or it should have happened maybe at the end of Act 2. After the uh, fight or something. After, yeah, after the fight. That's where it should have happened, to sort again, to tell you more about the character that she said these awful things. But this is what, you know, how she really feels about it. But then what I love is that, so she finishes this abbreviated version of the song. And then Sheriff Burt Reynolds is like, you know what? check this out. And he just goes outside and starts grabbing her shit out of the back of a U-Haul and just throws it into his truck. And he's like, you know what? You're coming with me. Right. And she's like, (laughs) okay, forget that song I sang so emotionally less than 90 seconds ago where I poured my heart into the notion of this bittersweet idea that as much as I love you, the fact that I love you is the reason I can't be with you. And they get in his pickup truck and he drives at no less than 60 miles an hour through this field, like coming off the ground. I don't know why they're going so fast or what they're in a hurry to go do, but he hauls ass and they, you know, bounce around on whatever sorry, you know, struts and suspension and shocks he has in this vehicle. And uh, they make their, their their way into the sunset. Yeah, and, and we get a little narration from Deputy Fred where he, he talks about how everyone in, in the movie got what they wanted. Uh, which was, you know, Melvin Thorpe got what he wanted. Uh, Libertarianism. <laughs> everybody gets what they wanted and you just stay out of everybody's way. Right, and the people of Texas, they got what they wanted. The, the one thing that I think is kind of notable about the very end of this is that when, when you see the last shot of the uh, the whorehouse, the sign is closed on account of the TV. Just like in Poltergeist. Right. Right. <laughs> yeah. I thought about that, too. And and I even, I really thought about Poltergeist in other movies that really began to to see the negative impact of television on you know culture and society and you can argue that a a lot of different ways but in watching it and looking at at the melvin p thorpe character i was like you know what i'm going to use television to my own selfish arguably nefarious means and i'm going to get what i want out of it Uh, as we actually roll credits we get a much shorter version of the movie if if someone were to say like would you recommend that uh i whether or not I should see Bessel Whorehouse in Texas, I would say start with the end credits. See how that grabs <laughs> you. That's the whole movie in like 35 seconds. 
And if you liked what you saw, then maybe you buy into the full two hours. It's a weird recap of, of all the scenes. And they're out of order and they're all over the place. If, if somebody asked me if, you know, should they see this movie? I don't know that there's anyone who's ever going to ask that question because, <laughs> because you are either, you're either a Dolly Parton fan and you're like, I want to see this because I like Dolly Parton. Or you're a Burt Reynolds fan and you're going to see it because of him. Or maybe you're just sort of, you know, doing some sort of research of, of, you know, musicals throughout the ages. So I think at this point in time, like anyone who's watching it is watching it with purpose. Um, I don't know that you're going to accidentally, you know, stumble across this. If somebody did ask me, you know, just even based on our reviews of it, would I recommend watching it? Absolutely. Of all the movies that we've seen thus far in this series, I found myself enjoying this one as much, if not more than, than all of the others. Smokey and the Bandit has a, a certain place in my heart just because of, you know, when I saw it as a kid, but this is a very entertaining movie. It has its and misses tonally. It's a little all over the place, but I really found myself just enjoying Dolly Parton so much in this film. It made me kind of, you know, want to go back and maybe take a look at, you know, nine to five again, or maybe some of our other uh, signature roles. She's just, she's great in everything. Yeah. She, she is the reason to watch this movie. If you were ever stuck on an airplane or something, that's playing Pestle Whorehouse in Texas. If if you're on a, if you're on an airplane that's showing this, you, you just, you need to, get a parachute and jump. Like, I don't know what airline you're flying, but, but that, that that would be a warning sign. If I sit down and I see the in-flight movies, best little whorehouse in Texas, I'm getting off. Yeah. You know they don't I mean? announce it. It just happens. <laughs> so, yeah. And you've maybe gone through a time warp or something like that. So, the, so that's uh, the best little, that's the best little whorehouse in Texas. Any other uh, final thoughts on that one? Yeah. I, I, I can't say enough how boring I think this movie is. I think outside of the scenes, with uh Burton Dolly. I, I think everything else in this movie kind of drags to one degree or another. And by the end of it, I was so worn out. It, it this movie is two hours long and felt every bit of it for me. Um it it's definitely um better up until the halfway point and then it really falls apart. Yeah. So I and I, I would think that even if you watch the whole movie and you get up to the point where Burt Reynolds um, stands up to Melvin P. Thorpe and fires his gun and scares him off. You can turn off the movie and you're good to go. Unless you want to watch a bunch of gay cowboys jump around and chime in on whether or not you think this guy slapped this other guy's cock in the shower. The odds are uh, in your favor, sir, but uh, <laughs> I think that might be a house always wins scenario. So Chad, th that was my pick this week. Your pick comes next and what do we have to look forward to coming up uh, in the next episode we are going to atlanta with burt reynolds uh with sharky's machine it is a gritty dirty hairy-esque movie that involves prostitutes and uh, cocaine and uh, lots of gunplay where all of the bullets magically ricochet it's the first dramatic film that we will really be uh, diving into for all of the things that have failed in these comedies that we've discussed over the last four episodes, we're going to flip that on its head and talk about all of the things that failed tragically when it comes to building suspense in a crime thriller that deals with prostitutes, guys that like to jack off and expose themselves in public parks. I, I can't wait. Uh, all right. Well, <laughs> folks, thanks so much for listening. Uh, we will be back in one week's time uh, to talk a little more 
Burt Reynolds on season one of Pick Six Movies. Uh, until then, 